Welcome to the Health Suggestion Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovations, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the Health Enthusiasm books and keynote speaker on health, business, and technology. Now, if you're new to the Health Enthusiasm Podcast, you might wonder what Health Enthusiasm is all about. Well, Health Enthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. And so, Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. This is episode number 16, and for this discussion, we have two of your beloved experts in the panel. How are you doing, guys? Good. How are you? I have a cold. So I might be sounding... I might be sounding a little bit like I'm reading the trailer of a new Die Hard movie, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, people always find me more sexy when I have a cold. <laughs> yeah, don't flatter yourself too much. Anyways, together we will be amplifying the health enthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. This is the fourth episode of the second season. And in this show, we will discuss how to set up telehealth for success and whether healthcare as a product is something, nothing, or everything. But first, some health enthusiasms, some positive changes that will impact our health and happiness and that the health enthusiasm panel wants to inspire you with. Aditi, what is your health enthusiasm this month? Yeah, so this month it was actually a story that I read that I just found interesting, whether I'm enthusiastic about it 100%. But basically there was a model out in a rural area in the U.S., which, like many other places, is a medical desert. There aren't many hospitals or clinics or physicians who work there. And so they modeled out trying to, instead of hire more physicians or try to hire more people to go there, they wanted to pay more to the cardiologists who were already there and see if they could incentivize them to spend more time in those rural areas. And to no one's surprise, it actually worked. I mean, if you look at all of the research in behavioral economics and nudge and all of these things, that works. Financial incentives work. What I thought was surprising about it is that somebody actually tried that. Like many other places, there's been an entire change in our workforce, how we're paying for things. People are getting paid less uh, for seeing more patients. And so the fact that they even took a chance to pay more um, was really what surprised me. I think it makes a big difference both to physicians and to the patients because they can actually have somebody in person. They have a specialist in person. And then you don't need to hire or wait for more doctors to be trained. You can actually just bring them in. So we'll see if they do anything more than this. I don't necessarily think so. I think this is just going to be one of those things that we know is true, we've now proven is true, but may not actually follow and be paid for because it's more expensive. Not in the long run, but it feels more expensive. But I did find it interesting that somebody did try it and to no surprise it worked. Okay. Super interesting. I, I remember we once had a discussion on incentivizing patients. And I think in the discussion, one of the, the things that came up was that probably incentivizing with money might not be sustainable over time. First of all, because it might be difficult to, to, to keep on getting the defense for it, but also that maybe financial incentives might not you know always be that motivating uh, over time do you think that might play a role here as well that maybe physicians wouldn't be incentivized by those you know financial incentives i think in general it'll come to a point where 
there will always be someone who could be financially incentivized to move or do mm. some of those things. Oh, yeah. But of course, as you get further on in your career or uh, it becomes more impractical with whatever else is going on in your life, let's say you have older children or you have children or you have to be in a certain area, it may not work as well. But I think that it will work in general because unlike patients, which are dealing with their own individual health, when you're paying clinicians more, paying these doctors more, that's their job. So one of the incentives is financial. And so oh, it yeah. makes sense that it may continue. Okay, Mo? Yeah, I totally agree with DT. And uh, from a behavioral psychology point of view, uh, financial incentive, incentives work when the effort is low. So, or the task is simple so for a cardiologist to stay where he is and just do what he or she is the already doing job. is simple. Mm. But if you ask a patient to do things that are more complex, financial incentives do not work anymore. <clears throat> if you look at people work, working at plants and you say, we make a hundred today, we need to make 120 tomorrow. You give the financial incentive that works. But if you ask a consultant to bring more business in and it's more complex, then the incentives do not work. So I totally agree with Aditi. The task is quite simple. It is convenient. And I think the incentive will work. Lovely, lovely. Let's stay in the States. Let's go to some retailers. Best Buy, which if you're from Europe, you might not be 100% familiar with, but it's an American multinational consumer electronics retailer, a bit similar to what we know in, in Europe as Dixon's or Fnac or Cool Blue Media Market, maybe. Or if you're listening from Asia, JD or Suning might be might come to mind. Well, Best Buy Health is now partnering up again with a hospital. In this case, it was Mass General Brigham Hospitals. And so what they will do is they will provide their technology that they have available at Best Buy. Um, they will provide their technology to um, help with more human-centered and even omnichannel logistics to scale and support the home care offering um, by these hospitals. So they will be providing remote patient monitoring platforms, which Best Buy bought last year called Current Health, and then also some personal emergency response devices called Lively. And I said, this is not the first time they're doing it. They already have a collaboration with NC-based Atrium Health. So I find this really interesting and like a retailer, a consumer electronic retailer partnering up with, with hospitals. We haven't seen that, I think, in Europe and so I'm really, really curious to see when a FNAC or a media market or a Dixon's might be stepping into this field as well. Mo, what health enthusiasm did you see or hear in the previous months? Well, I have a mischievous smile on my face because we've been taught a lesson about arrogance and complacency by women again. It's about two powerhouse researchers, Dr. Natalie Ochelbrook and Sarah Lucy, who just dropped not really a bombshell, but something interesting, again, about women, how they're underestimated. Uh, it seems that in prehistoric times, they were not just gathering the cliche that women were gathering and the men were hunting has been completely destroyed. They were hunting and they were darn good at it. In the latest studies, they're rewriting history. They're correcting the history that erased women from the hunting narrative. Uh, so imagine this prehistoric women were just bystanders. They were out there on the front lines getting injured hunting like ultimate badasses. And now let's go into nitty gritty of DOG hunters. Why were they hunting? It's about, they were just better at it. If you look at the female body, it's a powerhouse for endurance. And Dr. Okocek, uh, Ochoba breaks it down. Estrogen and another hormone, adiponectin, 
these two cool hormones were the secret sauce making prehistoric ladies the marathon runners of their time. And it's estrogen is not just about fat metabolism. It's also the unsung hero of life. It protected cells during intense activities. It played a crucial role in cardiovascular health, brain development, and injury recovery. And there's the adiponectin, another hero keeping muscles in top shape. So there's proof. There's proof because from Peru, ancient women were buried with their hunting gear, and you don't bury something with something unless it's really important. So forget about the idea that women took a break from hunting during pregnancy while carrying kids. It just didn't happen. So why, why do I find this important? Because this is what we do. It's about the arrogance of us interpreting what happened in the past with the view that we have today and thinking that all we know today is absolutely true. So I love that. And that is what enthusiasm is also about. It's about, you know, breaking barriers and rewriting the narrative one episode at a time. Lovely. Some nice, some nice insights there. I wasn't aware of that. Going from one arrogance to another, I'm trying to make a bridge here. That's not a nice one. I'm going to the tech industry, but let's have a look at what happened with ChatGPT and OpenAI. And I, I won't go too much into the detail of the saga that's been happening in recent weeks. If you're not aware of what happened, Sam Altman, the CEO, was fired uh, as CEO of OpenAI. He was fired by the board only a couple of days after their first Open Dev Day. Funnily enough, Microsoft, which is one of Microsoft, uh, the most important investors of OpenAI, they immediately offered them a job. And that was only the beginning of the saga because a couple of days later, other people from the C-suite decided to leave OpenAI. And I think even the newly appointed CEO decided, I, I don't want to do this. I'm out of here. And then in the next few days, 600 of the 700 employees wrote a letter to the board saying that they'll quit if that board stays on. Anyway, I'm, I might have missed a couple of entanglements or plot twists along the way here, but that is pretty much what happened in less than a week time. But that's not why I wanted to bring this up, because I actually wanted to talk about what happened during the open dev day that ChatGPT has done or, or ha held a couple of days before this whole saga thing. And this open dev day was really felt to me like the launch of the iPhone in 2007. Um, I mean, there were a lot of improvements related to GPT and DALI. That was nice. But mainly they announced the GPT store, which is basically a store where you can store, but also sell the, the GPTs that you'll be making. And that was some really nice news. It, it was kind of expected, but it really, really was nice. But it, because it means that you can now build your own chat GPT. And that was expected, but it was, wasn't expected that it was that easily to build. I even tried it a little bit myself. And so what it really comes down to is that you can very easily upload information into your own chat GPT, your GPT platform, so that people can more easily find that information or even interact with that information in a way. So more concretely, for example, I could upload my book, you know, the, the transcripts from this podcast, the videos, my keynotes, my newsletters, my articles, so that people can actually go to something like a, you know, health enthusiasm GPT, if you will, and then ask questions about it to interact with that information. And I think this is, this is super interesting and super relevant in healthcare, because if you think about it, there's a, about 1 billion, 1 billion health-related queries, searches on Google every day. One billion. Uh, so people are looking a lot of lot for health-related information. That's, it, it's about 7% of the entire Google queries that go on. And so you can imagine that companies like WebMD or any, any you know, website that currently has a ton of information, 
that are consulted via Google that they could easily start building their own GPT and that you can actually ask questions to the WebMD chatbot to have more concrete information available. And I think that will be super relevant But you, because you can imagine that patient organizations or hospitals or pharma companies, that they could all, with all that information that they have at, at, at their availability, that they could all upload this into their own GPT so that the patient can actually more easily find those awareness, educational programs in the future. Because all those information will be in some sort of interactive chatbot to be to be found. And of course, you know, I'm not talking about diagnostics. I'm not talking about clinical support. Uh, that will come as well sooner or later. But it's not really for the near future, I think, although things are moving that fast. But I'm more talking about, you know, the general health information that right now can be found online. And I think that, you know, every health organization should be starting to play with this because GPTs or, you know, large language models in general will be the front door of every health organization. And I I really liked it. It's a little bit futuristic. I'm thinking about what could happen, but I really think when I saw that news coming in, that announcement, I was like, whoa, with the interest in health information, this could be a major change in how we access information. And I'm not talking about within five years, I'm thinking about within one or two years. So quite a quite a quite a big change if you ask me. Now to round up this health enthusiasms, I always have a couple of weird ones which I will use to quiz you on. I have about three. So here you go. Feel free to let me know what you think this is about. First one is about lifetime fitness. They will start a pilot program. And my question to you is, what is so special about it? And there's a small hint I would I'd love to take you. Um, will give you is that we talked about it before on this podcast. Why is this pilot program so special by Lifetime Fitness? You don't have to get out of bed to fitness. That would be great. <laughs> but this is not something we talked about previously, right? Um, it was a it was a it was a concrete topic. And was it music driven? We did something with no. music and behavior. No. no, I'll give the answer away. It has to do with the miracle weight loss jab. Olympic. So it's a general fitness, but what they will do is they will bring in medical professionals in-house to deliver the obesity drugs to their members. The program will include blood tests. It, it will meet FDA, FDA guidelines, but it is to you know attract people and make sure that they comply with the physical activity and perhaps even lose some, some, some weight along the way. Well, this is so ironical where home delivery used to be the problem in food ordering or or sedentary lifestyle you don't even have to get out of the house to lose weight so Mm. that's really interesting a second one there's a new watch on the market that is supposedly good for your health but what is so special about the watch i won't be given any hints here a watch that is good for your health aditi any thoughts Mm. No, unless it's like being able to actually not just get your health data, but also give you feedback on what to do next. No, not really. Mo, what do you think? I think it needs to be good at nudging something that I don't know exactly uh, why. Yeah, cool. Yeah, comes close indeed. Well, it's, it actually doesn't show time. So it's a watch, watch that does, we're too consumed with time. We're too obsessed with time. And so what it only does, it, it uh, gives you nudges. 
and you can you can say at what intervals it could be 15 30 45 or 60 minutes and it the only thing that will do is just gently nudge you of the fact that another 15 minutes has passed another 16 minutes has passed and the idea is that you are less obsessed with how late is it but that you more in in uh, aware of what is happening that you more in in in, in the moment and that is kind of like how they would love to get you away of being obsessed by time just being obsessed by how late it is let's say but it's more about mindfulness is that that's basically what they try to achieve i'm not quite sure whether it'll ever fly i think it was well i think if it integrates across your entire ecosystem of devices because the yeah. the times that i look at my watch for time is inferior to the times that i look at time on the, the you know laptop or anything else so i think if it if it's a service that integrates in, across your entire ecosystem it might work yeah fully, fully agree there and the third one is also integrated in the entire ecosystem it's a pendant so we're staying in the uh, wearable space it's called the rewind pendant and it is said to help peace of mind and also helps to be more present and why I put this up, because I, when I first saw it, I was like, what, this is, this is ridiculous. But it was endorsed by Mark Andreessen, you know, the big venture capitalist and famous venture capitalist from A16Z. And it was also endorsed by Sam Altman by OpenAI saying, this is probably the future for personalized AI. What does dependent do? I actually know the answer, so I'm not going to uh, guess. What? Please, please go ahead because I blank out. Yeah, so it actually records what you're saying so that it can like actually send it to your phone. Exactly. Part of this whole ambient uh, communications and ambient AI. Yeah, so it really, it really records everything that has been said around you and, in, and it's transcripted to your phone. So basically, you'll never have an, you know, an, an argument with your life partner about what has, who has said what. <laughs> or if you forgot some, something you need to pick up from the grocery store, it is recorded. So it's not even, it can automatically make a to-do list for you. I'm not quite sure. It, it looks great. It's not that big. It's a very nice, cool shape. But I mean, this, that's a ton of data and it's like privacy wise and which is, which is a, <laughs> a recurring topping in these kind of things. I was, I was pretty shocked by it. Uh, but indeed, it records everything that has been said, your entire environment. I mean, there's an entire group of articles where you can use this for health data, right? So if you're a physician and you're with your patient, using AI to gather the information so it goes into your medical record is one of the use cases people talk about, Absolutely. but you have to tell everybody about it. Now, that's okay if you're in a closed environment yeah. like a clinic room, but if you're in public and people are just speaking, what's your responsibility to tell everybody that you're recording? Like, how do you do that? Right. If you're in a busy, you know, a cafe, you like, what do you just announce it to everybody? It's just not practical. <laughs> now, manner, but people may not like to be recorded. I certainly wouldn't. No, sure. It's a, it's a weird thing, but yeah, this is where we're, this is where, where are we heading? Anyways, thank you for all these health enthusiasms. It is a health enthusiasm world indeed, and there's a lot of positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. If you want to know more about these health enthusiasms, you can go to thehealththusiasmpodcast.com, perhaps even subscribe to our newsletter. Um, the health enthusiasm from this show will be summarized for you in a monthly newsletter um, that is coming up in 2024. By subscribing, you can also have access to more exclusive content, maybe over time. So don't hesitate to do that. Subscribe via healthusiasmpodcast.com. But now time 
for something else. So yeah, we always have these fixed um, segments in the show, but this time we do something different. I'd like to address Aditi here. You are a doctor of medicine. You are a master of science. You are a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians, but you are also now a author, or maybe I should say a best-selling author in the meantime, even. You brought out a book uh, which is called Telehealth for Success, and we'd love to hear about what it, what it is about and what we should be learning from it. Thank you. Yes, it's been really exciting. So just as a quick background, we started writing it over a year ago, uh, probably the beginning of, well, spring of 2022, and it finally was done a year later. And it just came out about a week ago. And so, yes, even prior to it, it was a bestseller, which is really exciting. It seems that a lot of people wanted this particular topic. It's called Telehealth Success, How to Thrive in the New Age of Remote Care. And it generally goes through how, like a manual and a framework for how to build telemedicine programs, but also from the individual, local to governmental levels. We looked at it from very many aspects. And we looked and decided, okay, if we're going we're gonna to take our experiences and take what the world has experienced, what are the places that people really know, know, need to know about? And we, so we broke it down into five large domains. And each one goes into particular details in a pillar. So anybody reading it could decide this might be the most important or I need to go back to this. And so the first one is on patient success. And that was really important that we started there because in the end, we think that patients are the most important portions, part of the healthcare system. So we talked about their access, how do they experience telehealth, how do they experience the healthcare system, and how do we intervene and make it better for them? And we really wanted to find out what the actual data was for the quality of care, right? Because nobody's going to do it um, unless there is actual quality of care. And then second is uh, clinician success. So I'm a physician and I practiced uh, telemedicine for about 10 years. And so I saw a lot of patients and then we really just talk about what is their experience. And we look at it from the individual clinicians, right? We talk about burnout. We talk about how they're integrated into the workforce, how telehealth is affecting them. And then we give them actual practical tips, like how do you set up your space? How do you do a physical exam? How do you connect with your patients over technology, which is a large concern for both patients and clinicians alike? Then, you know, we pull out a bit a little bit too and say, okay, if you're an organization or a health system or you're a physician or clinician leader, how do you build out your system? We really want to make sure that, you know, whatever is the effect on medicine, it's supposed to give the same background and everybody has an idea of how clinicians and the clinical aspect is important to digital health. The next is technology. I mean, I say this a lot, and we actually also stress this, that when you're building out most digital health programs, the tech actually ends up being the easiest part. Um, Now, saying that, you need to know some basic parts of it. And so we look at like what is common questions, what are common things to know, but also some nitty gritty that actually I think are pretty interesting. So for anybody who works in this space, you know, people talk about EMR integration a lot. I'm just using this example, but it means different things. And so we define it out, like what is data integration? What is workflow integration? How do you have a conversation? So people who work on tech teams versus clinicians can have a conversation together. So things like that that are relevant and important to know when you're choosing your technology and what kind of technology you need. There's a very detailed (laughs) description of cameras, for example, but, you know, things that you might just want to know. And the fourth is like finances. 
this ends up being probably for me was the most interesting thing to write about, mainly because financial systems are just somewhat nebulous. And we focus on the United States, which is in general very complicated. But I think what's interesting about the U.S. is that any type of health system that you look out internationally, there's some version of it within the U.S. We have a nationalized health plan for like the veterans, right? We have private insurance, we have concierge, we have Medicare, which has several service lines. And so we go like how to reimburse for it, how it's, we think through it, and how you really advocate for improving it. And so we do have some international case studies, but we really look at also like their particular interesting portions and how they built it out. And, you know, aside from that, we look at also the cost of setting it up, which also ends up being a big question. And then lastly, we look at compliance. And compliance is really like everything else that's regulatory. So it can be laws around it, licensing, avoiding fraud, malpractice, how advocacy works for it. And so this is really like the five pillars. And one thing I want to always tell people, there's like some things that are most important that I wanted to get across when writing this is that. You know, the first is like many people in the digital health world assume two things. One, that telehealth has been figured out and that we all know how to build it and people understand it. And that's really not true. There are a lot of places, there are a lot of governments, there are a lot of programs that don't, don't have telehealth or they haven't integrated it. And so this is a really a chance for taking the experiences that are out there and making sure that everybody has that information so they don't really need to repeat it. And then second, you know, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who assume that it's actually really easy to do and um, they don't really need any help in it. Now, generally what will happen in those situations that, yeah, maybe you figure it out, but most of the time there's going to be a barrier and people won't use it in some way. Maybe you won't get engagement or maybe your tech fails or you can't get the workflow to work. And so it's really important to also say, okay, other people have done this. So why don't you just learn from them? So you don't have to do the same thing over and over. And second, so we wanted to focus really heavily on research. You guys know me. Every time I'm on the podcast, I want the data. I want to know what the evidence is. And so here was no different. So we had to put in a lot of research. We looked at a lot of research and we added that in. And sometimes it made us question our assumptions or figuring out like what is it that we thought might not be true. And so in that way, I learned a lot while writing that as well. And then thirdly, we wanted to make it really storytelling. So I've written book chapters on telemedicine in a number of papers, many of them, but all of them are really academic. And this one was really more like, what are the experiences that are out there that I've had, that my co-author had, that are really the stories? They're stories from clinicians. You know, I, I have a lot of colleagues or my personal stories, uh, which I have. What are the patient stories? What are the things that have happened to other people? And I think that ends up putting things into context for people. Um, and so I think that's really important to have. And there really isn't, in general, a book like that. So first thing, this doesn't exist. What was interesting to me is the amount of people that reached out and said, you know, oh, I teach this, or I built this, or I run this program. And this book was not out there for me as a framework. And so this is really important that you wrote it, which is really nice to hear. And let's see what the feedback is. And hopefully that people find it very interesting and useful in that way. And then lastly, and I mentioned this a little bit, is that this framework isn't really specific to telemedicine. So telemedicine to me is the basis of all of digital health, mainly because all it's saying is that, hey, how do we do basic medical visits in people's homes or remotely? Everything else that you build out, right? So RPM, hospital at home, DTX, AI tools, all of that is going to build upon that because you're using that remote care and figuring out how to do it better. And so the same questions and frameworks that we built here are similar for those other implementations, because in the end, it's less about the tech itself. It's really going to be about how do you 
think through the healthcare system? How do all these groups think through it? How do you reimbursement? How do you organize it? And so the tech modality has to be thought of in the same way for each of these. It's not overall as like some of the things that we thought through. And so I enjoyed really writing it. For me, it was cathartic because I was able to bring a lot of the memories and patient stories and my experience in healthcare, both as an emergency physician and telemedicine, and put it to page and really put down the experience of it. I mean, I know, Christoph, you've written books, but sometimes like having that uh, ability really makes you take a step back and say, okay, this is uh, all that I've done so far. And so it's really wonderful to be able to do that. So yeah, so thank you for letting me share about that. And on that note, I wanted to see if you guys have any questions about it. I know that we all come from different backgrounds. And so there might be other parts of this that are interesting to you. Well, I think I'll kick off here. Indeed, I have to confirm with you. I mean, when, when you write a book, it's like you're digesting your, everything that you've experienced, everything that you've, you've taught yourself sometimes even. It helps to order your, your, your thoughts. So I think, I think it's as a process, it makes you smarter, by, I mean, just by doing it. But my question is about, you know, you mentioned rightfully so, I mean, technology is probably the easiest part. I think one of my frustrations, and maybe even from many patients out there as well, is that the technology, technically speaking, has been out there for many years, several decades even maybe. <clears throat> so why did it take so long before telehealth is now, you know, ever since COVID perhaps, been integrated in, in, in our approaches. And shouldn't you have written that book about 20 years ago then? Or or someone should have. I certainly was 20 years ago. I don't know how old you think I am, Christoph, but 20 years ago, I was not in this position to be able to write it. But I agree. But it's so, well, to answer your first question, you know, for I, I did join it 10 years ago. So I have some background in that. But the, the thing was that there wasn't enough push to think through it. So we all now have smartphones and we use them all the time. But reality, the smartphones that we use, like the iPhone came out in 2009. So it changed all of our lives in many ways from that point on. So it wouldn't have really been engagement or we didn't have it in our hand in a way that everyone could use it. And then in general, healthcare is slower because, you know, there's the risk is higher, the barriers are higher. And so you need to be able to take that into account. And so while patients may like it now, and we found multiple stories about how patients like it now, they didn't necessarily want to use it when I first started. They thought it was exciting, but they didn't really understand it. And so then you had like patients who may not want to use it, then you didn't have clinicians that trusted it either. And so you have this like chicken and egg problem of like, where do you start and make it better? But in general, it was a whole host of things. It was reimbursement, it was clinicians, it was the tech being still part of like society. It's still putting it into healthcare. And the reality, healthcare has so many different problems that this wasn't necessarily the first solution that came to anybody's mind. Now, of course, the pandemic made that change because that was the solution that fixed the problem of decreasing exposure and making sure that people didn't have to leave their house or you know, go into a hospital room if they didn't need to, right? This was a solution for that. But that really was like a black swan event that you couldn't have predicted. I think if that hadn't happened, we would still be slowly trying to implement it. And even with the pandemic, it hasn't really gone to every single part of society still. We're still working on it, trying to change some of those things still. Yeah, great. I hope your book can help to accelerate it because I think it's really needed and it provides definitely quite some opportunities to increase access uh, to healthcare. What do you think, Mo? Well, first of all, congratulations and kudos to you, Aditi. I love the way you you know, took our hand and, and, and guided us through the thought process. And I think it's really nice. And I almost opened Amazon to, to order it, but I hope you'll send it to us written 
you know, with a signature. I'll send you my address. But anyway, I'm, I think I, I think it's incredibly fascinating, and and maybe you could guide us through a thought that I have. Some companies might say, you know, for us it's core, it's our bread and butter. We only specialize in telehealth, and we we kind of verticalize in it. Other are traditional healthcare companies that say, you know, we need to add this to our portfolio of services to be sustainable for the future. And then my question is. Uh, how is a traditional healthcare company with a traditional management equipped for the culture of integrated that integrating that and having that commitment to really make it an integral part of their company? Does that tendency make some management obsolete? Are they well equipped to be at the helm of such a company that is investing into telehealth? That's such a good question because there's so many different answers to it. But I will say this. So, you know, I'll take the first portion of it when we look at organizations, right? So this is how we talk about how that it is always easier if the person at the top, whether it's a traditional place or not, believes in it. So when when I first, when I worked at Jefferson, and I say this often, the CEO there really believed in it. In fact, I got recruited there because he really believed in telemedicine and he built it out. Luckily for me, when I was trying to build it and make sure that it was implemented in most departments, because he believed in it, it was a top-down approach and it forced everyone to do it. Now saying that, most people don't have that. So how do you make sure that you still have a champion to do it? That, that didn't happen. So what most people did is that maybe one department would start it because one department or one area, one pillar would have a champion. And so they would build it out. And then inevitably, when the pandemic happened and the entire organization or the entire company needed to do it, then they would start grabbing at whatever they could. And so they didn't have the background or the experience to decide how do we make sure that we have a comprehensive program so that further down the line, we don't have to do things again piecemeal. And what we're seeing a lot of is people trying to look at their portfolio and say, oh, no, you know, we have all these new, we bought all these things during the pandemic. We signed all these contracts. Now, what do we do to make sure that oh, what we want to make and build our healthcare system in the future is only like a few different products? We don't want like seven. We want like one or two to help. But what, so what we recommended is just thinking through that, like, you know, if you are somebody that even in a traditional way, like think through, like, what is your goals for two years, for five years? And then say, you know, now that this is becoming part of our healthcare system, like try to like figure out who the champion is. And if it's not you, find the person who is, but give them the authority to do this from like a centralized place. And I think that would help. And what I what I was want to stress again is that when you know I'm working in a place that they're really trying to build out their telemedicine now, I know tell them right, don't make the mistake that we did. Do not do it piecemeal because it is the it's the gut reaction. People do it that way. They do it exactly that way. But I was like, don't do it that way. Think about it comprehensively and don't make the same mistake we did. We'll see though. You know, humans are humans, but I would love to see more people take that and say, okay, let's 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 not do what I've seen over the last decade. Wonderful. Very, very nice answer. Thank you. Yeah. And I think to, 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 to rebound on that, I think one of the biggest issues perhaps also in, in, in healthcare to innovate is the time needed to set it up is often not there. We're already struggling with a backlog, a backlog. Healthcare professionals are you know, already working very hard. And how is it, how easy is it to actually set it up? Is the time investment is it worth it to do it for physicians? The short answer is yes, because I think in most specialties, regardless of the specialty, 
there is a way to use it to streamline your work. There is some way to do it. Because, you know, just taking the basic definition of using technology to connect two parties remotely for a healthcare encounter, there's going to be a use case for almost everyone. Even so pathology, which, you know, is traditionally does not see patients in a way that is direct, right? They look at slides and things. Still for them, maybe they need to consult with somebody further away instead of waiting to send them slides so they can look at it. They can send them images, right? That is actually technically a form of telehealth. So in that way, I think that for everybody, it's really just being very creative and also really defining what the problems are. Generally, we can think that most healthcare systems might have overarching problems that are similar across the board, but they may not be exactly similar. But figuring out, like, like, what are you trying to solve? Are you trying to solve it for one clinic? Are you trying to solve it for your local community? Are you a statewide community? Or are you trying to solve it for a country? And based on that, determining what kind of programs you want to build and what you want to pay for, I think is going to be exactly how you build it out much more effectively. But really just doing that research, knowing what you're trying to solve. Okay. Interesting. You know, when, when I finish a book, I most of the time had a, have already an idea of what the next book will be. So my question to you is, what, what, what will the next book be about? I think for me, probably it will be the idea of this framework and then taking it further and saying, okay, for other digital portions, how are we going to build a framework for that? Like and DTX necessarily, and... Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. what probably would be most interesting to do next is... From the from taking from telehealth, I mean, I speak a lot about how RPM AI is going to be next integrated. So for me, writing about that and how that does happen and how it has actually impacted the healthcare community and where we are maybe 10 years from down the line or five years down the line. And how has the lessons from telemedicine improved mm. how we built out those particular types into healthcare? Well, congrats, best-selling author Aditi Joshi. Thank it's you. a wonderful achievement. I'm really looking forward to reading the book as well. Time to move on. Time to move to the next segment of the Healthism podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? Every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation, or a evolution forward that sparked their enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinions about it. Do they find it something, nothing, or everything? And this month, we'll talk about healthcare as a product, and I'll bring forward the article. It is something that I already learned about, I think, it was over a year ago while I was listening to the Fit Insider podcast. It's a lovely uh, podcast if you're interested in anything related to health and fitness. And when I heard it, it I was truly really excited. Um, not just because the CEO of the company, which is called Adrian Aoun, is truly a person that is actually very hyper. He speaks with a lot of passion, which we expect from um, startups, of course. But it's also because it fits with something I've been saying in my keynotes for a while. And that is, we need to get rid of healthcare services. Okay, this may sound exaggerated, this may sound naive, definitely when it's pulled out of the context, I know, but it kind of makes totally sense if you think about it in a certain way. Because if you think about it, most healthcare services, most of the times are not great experiences. Um, and that is not the value that patients are looking for. That is not the value that patients are engaging with, with services. So in my opinion, healthcare services, and definitely those that require a lot of engagement, they should be replaced with healthcare experiences. 
That is one part of the solution I always talk about in my talks. Um, but that would make, of course, a lot of services more expensive. And frankly speaking, maybe we don't always need a better or more enjoyable experience. Frankly, in many cases, we probably don't. But some healthcare services, and I'm thinking specifically about the ones related to diagnosis, perhaps also the ones related to health management, in my opinion, they need to be more scalable and definitely cheaper. And so in that case, healthcare services need to become products. And with the rise of AI, mobile health apps, and wearable devices, this is perfectly possible, I believe. And so last week, the company I was talking about just a minute ago, they announced the launch of such scalable product, which they call CarePods. The company is called Forward. It is a silicon-based health innovator, uh, and their vision is fully in line with the health thesis and philosophy. What they say in many of their you know, websites and communication that they put out there is that health is not just about seeing your doctor when you're sick. It's about a continuous, comprehensive health management and therapy. And so with those care pots, they want to achieve this. But what is a care pot? Well, it is a small mobile unit that can be placed anywhere. It looks a bit like those public toilets you sometimes see in big cities. You know, you push the button and you enter that mobile unit. Well, it's the same here, but instead of a toilet, of course, you have in the spots numerous medical devices in it. And the CarePod allows patients to access a variety of health apps, diagnostic tools, you know, biometric scans, blood tests, and health assessments. And the patients really should do, them, should do it themselves. Um, they're guided by virtual assistants, but they should do it themselves. And then a proprietary AI will anal uh, analyze the patient data and make care recommendation based on latest medical research that is available uh, to the AI. Afterwards, the patient can manage their own health, you know, using those um, dedicated apps that have been shared with them in that pod. If necessary, they can reach out to a physician or a physician will reach out to them virtually, telehealth again, if that is necessary. And these pods can basically be placed anywhere. Uh, so it helps with you know, accessing or making healthcare services products, in this case, more accessible, which otherwise would require a physician. You would need to go to a physician or a physician need to be available. And you probably would have to wait quite some time before you can actually see that physician. In this case, you just enter the pod do some tests, get the results, and if necessary, a physician will contact you. So in a way, these care pods are more scalable, less expensive, and they are turning healthcare into a product. So Mo, healthcare as a product, is it something, nothing, or everything? I think it's everything because it just materializes healthcare as a product and it just makes me understand that technology or devices or a product is turning into especially technological products are turning into the most potent placebo we'll have and why what do i mean with that um, i think just the fact that it's there that it's salient and omnipresent despite of the actual clinical service and added value it might have, I think it's going to turn into something really, really powerful. And it made me think of, you know, the fact, what is a placebo? What is a placebo? I'm not saying it's not going to work for its pure clinical 
values. I think it's also going to be enhanced and amplified by the fact that it's there. And that just made me think, you know, do, do technological products that are available for healthcare, are they turning into the most power, powerful placebo we'll have? And they will be augmenting the real services they have. So let me just develop that. These care pots are going to be salient and omnipresent, right? So in terms of mental availability, it's incredibly, it's incredibly smart. You talked about Ozempic being delivered at home, you know, in behavioral change and, you know, convenience beats motivation, right? It eats motivation for breakfast. Secondly, the people who really believe in these products, you know, will have the highest benefit of it. So it will work very, very well for them. Secondly, if people believe really in innovation, I think we'll have incredible fans of these care pods that find it incredibly, incredibly convenient and incredibly powerful and will have an incredible impact on their health. But what's also really interesting is the time between a healthcare question and a healthcare response or a healthcare interaction will also be really, really short with a closed loop, sensorial closed loop on the fact that you've been delivered a healthcare service through a product. So, and then there is the, of course, the biometric feedback, the personalization and control of your own healthcare experience at your own time, in your own rhythm, with your own choice. I think that is going to incredibly amplify the impact it will have on, on, on healthcare. The other thing, I think if you put it in a public space, I don't know what the stigma is going to be. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not always... <laughs> Very fond of going into these little boots to show everyone that I have to go, right? So the fact that I'm going into a booth and saying, you know, I'm doing a healthcare service, maybe that will be that become that will become more and more popular and may, maybe become really integrated. But I think for all these reasons, salience, omnipresence. If you really are a fan of these technologies, if you are a fan of innovation, the fact that it's personalized, that you can control it on your own time, on your own pace, and that you get a close loop feedback really, really short, you know, in, in, in a short time span. I think these are all things that will amplify the success of these kinds of evolutions. Yeah. And, and it's happening already a little bit, right? I mean, we, we saw something similar, similar happening in China with being a good doctor, they actually placed about 10,000 similar mobile, mobile units near supermarkets. So it's not omnipresent yet. And I, I think Mo, it, it will take a while before we're omnipresent, of course. But these one-minute clinics, they call it with uh, being a good doctor, uh, it's a bit different from the care pods. What they do is they, on the right-hand side, you go in and you have a telehealth consultation with a real physician. <clears throat> and then the physician will prescribe you something and you can collect that medication on the left-hand side of the pods. So it's, it is... It is something similar. I think the CarePods have a bit more AI. Another example, which I liked very much and that I was using in my keynotes for quite a while is it was a futuristic idea that was made by a company called, a design company called AIM, which actually, it was the CarePods as is now presented by Forward, but it was also a driverless unit. So basically, if you're sick, the, the mobile unit would drive to your home and you could step into that mobile unit to do, you know, the AI research or the, your, your medical exam with an, with an AI, and then you know get get the feedback right away. So you don't even get, need to go to a supermarket or one of these common places where these pots are. And it, it sounded futuristic when I was talking about it in my keynote, but I I, I learned that in in the recent two two three years, I think Philip did a 
a competition for the the best ID for the future of health, I think. And the 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 the, the one thing that won uh, that competition was indeed this concept: a mobile unit, driverless, that comes to your door to do these uh, medical tests automatically for you, where the patient takes the control and AI gives you the the immediate feedback. I think it looks promising. Obviously, I'm a tech optimist. Honestly, I look at these kind of things with big eyes. Like, wow, this could be great. But what what do you think about Aditi as a physician? I think you have yeah some very interesting insights on this, probably right. This particular topic definitely got a lot of attention within the clinician, mm-hmm. the physician groups that I'm part of. But first of all, I'm going to say that in general, it's this is not the first time this company has been in there. It got more attention just now because of their distribution, but they've been trying to market for a long time. And mm-hmm. it probably just feels like the right time for them because this isn't new, this, this particular pod and what they were describing and what they've been trying to do. So they must be feeling this is the time that it's going to be ripe for actual growth. So that's interesting. So I don't know what it is, maybe the AI and people feeling more comfortable now. And in that way, that's interesting too, like why they decided now is the time to do this. Second, you know, in general, I don't have a problem with the fact that they're creating these pods and they're trying to ensure that all of the tools to, like I mentioned, make telemedicine visits better are going to be available in one centralized place. And so that patients can take uh, some control over their visits so they can go in, they can get some information. And then whatever information they're doing with whatever tools are within that pod can be sent to a clinician. And if needed, they can have a visit that way. That's the best way to make a better telemedicine visit is getting that information instead of like I had to do traditionally, try to just figure it out with creative uses of a physical exam or having them do certain things that I would watch. So this I, I can understand being better. What I think is part of my pushback is the idea that this is going to, two things. So one, that this is going to solve the issue of medical deserts. It will help because you're going to be able to get better visits in places that these are at. But if we use that as an excuse not to solve the problem of not having enough clinicians there, that's really not what I would advocate for. Like I want better access everywhere. And so that includes having an actual physician or something there. But what I think ends up happening is that we take tech and then we say that that's the only way around it. And I talk a lot about how telemedicine is great for rural areas or for medical deserts, but I don't want to ever say that that's the only thing that I think is necessary. Like the story about the cardiologist, it's very clear you do need cardiologists there. That's why they did it. And then second, you know, when he talks about healthcare being a, like a product now instead of a service, I also push back against that because when you talk about a product, what that means is that you have very specific outcomes. KPIs, right? And what you're going to find is that people have been trying to figure out what that is in healthcare for a very long time. What are the outcomes that are necessary? We had an entire program looking at mortality rates of hospitals and determining, does that make one hospital better than another? And so what people did instead is to get better statistics, they would just take patients that were less sick. So if you try to, again, make a healthcare product, you're going to start seeing all of these things happening to figure out what that product is. What are those outcomes? And so I don't think this company is going to figure out what that product is. They're probably just saying it as a marketing gimmick, but I don't like those semantics because it makes it very different. And it makes it seem like we're not trying to figure out the right outcomes. 
And we are. And this is not a, something that's going to be a product. It's something that's ongoing. And it's a service because no one at the moment is exactly the same, right? And their workflows aren't exactly the same. Some things are similar in the way that we think through, that we algorithmize out, like how we treat some of them. But it's a service because it still includes humans. But then lastly, I do enjoy the idea of figuring out what better tech is out there. I'd like to see some of their devices and how it works and what they actually find. So, I mean, I've heard some funny things and that this is also true is that one one of my friends uh, and colleagues had said, yeah, people don't realize you put a pod out there. They're not going to necessarily always use it for healthcare. He's like, definitely people are going to have sex in those pods in some place. So what are you going to do when that happens? Or maybe even pee. Yeah. Exactly. All of those things, because that's exactly what happens in many of our uh, healthcare environments. And so you have to <laughs> take it with a grain of salt and say, okay, how do we ensure that this is going to stay for its intended purpose? Yeah. I think what, what I really liked about the way that they presented it, because if, if you look at the apps that are in there and the tools that are in there, there's nothing new, right? There's, there's a lot of it is pretty basic and many people are already using apps to, you know, scan your skin or see what heart rate you have and then those kind of things. What I like about their approach is that they somehow, they bundle it all together and it's structured and it's supported by a physician in a structured way. And it's easily, between brackets, it's supposed to be easily accessible. And that is something that I that I think you, you, you use the existing technology, you put it in a framework, in a pot, technically speaking, physically speaking even, um, and then you make sure that that data is captured and that it is followed by a physician. That's that's one of the things that I liked about it. But then indeed, you could say that it's more of a service and it's not yet um, a product. One of the reflections I made, and that's a question that I've had for a while, is that with all these tools coming, and definitely with AI now in the next five to 10 years coming at an increased speed to healthcare, What's the role of the medical physician? And one of the one of the questions I always ask myself is, will the medical physician still be in front of the scenes or will they be behind the scenes? Will they be behind the screens? Or like the medical consultations will vanish, disappear, diminish, lower, but will be will happen less? And, and will physicians more behind all those AIs and those tools and behind dashboards? Is that the future where we're heading? I don't know what you think about that. I mean, maybe everyone talks about AI taking people's jobs away, et cetera. What I think that ends up happening is that people don't care if they take certain tasks away, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely tasks in, in being a physician that I don't necessarily want to do all the time, like search for results or type up incredibly long notes because I need the details of what happened and my thought process to go in them, right? That's not fun for me, but the actual patient care and thinking through what's going on and having a conversation with them. That is actually the part that I like. Now, if you're taking that away, yeah, people are going to push back. And AI, what should happen with technology and AI, it should take away the tasks that we don't want to do because Mm -hmm. it should be automated. If you can do that, I think people would have much less of a problem changing the way that we practice. And this is true not just for medicine. This is true everywhere. But with, I think, medicine, and people keep forgetting this, is that patients whelmingly do not really want just a machine. We think that because we hear all these like tech guys and tech bros and mm-hmm, the tech mm-hmm. world talk about it, but that's really not what the real world and the full, most of the population actually wants. And so I think people want better data and better, maybe streamlined data. Absolutely. People want that patients too, because they want to be able to get their 
uh, information in a more streamlined way, but it doesn't mean that they don't want a human at some point in that continuum to explain things that might be sensitive or, you know, sad or even happy, right? You, you That is like a part of the human experience. I mean, I can tell you that probably one of like, I tell the story often, but one of the most human experiences I had was somebody who died in front of me in the ER. Like we obviously people come in there and people die in the emergency room and it was an older woman and her daughters were there and it was really sad. I mean, they were in their sixties, a daughter, some woman who was in her nineties, but it was just this moment where together we like really like grieved over it. And, you know, they gave me a hug and every, mm. at that moment, and that cannot be replaced because that moment really was very human and that I don't want to give up, but again, give up the things that don't matter. But if you're going to say that now, you know, there's going to be a machine doing that. People don't actually want that. Nobody no, no, no. Yeah, that's a good remark. But I think the core of what care is about is going to become a premium. So I think a lot of companies will use technology to make it more affordable or less expensive, meaning that what you say, what people want, won't be as accessible anymore or at a premium. So, well, we see it in the time that if a general practitioner has to spend with a physician, with, with, with a patient, has been quantified. You know, you are remunerated to spend so much time. My partner is a physician. She stopped doing five-minute consultation. She says, if you're not paying for one hour or if you can't, you know, I, I can't really make a difference in the long term if I don't see you for one hour. It's people with, with, with larger, you know, quality of life issues. But you see that the interaction has been quantified as it has been monetized in some way, you know, three and a half minutes, five minutes. And what do you do? You scratch the surface. Uh, secondly, what is also really interesting in, in, in that reasoning is if healthcare products or service, services are becoming more available, what does it say about the, in, in, you know, the real health behavior and the prevention? Because if something is really, really accessible, what is the risk behavior that you will have towards your own health? Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's omnipresent. It is there. And if I need it, I can do it. So the ownership of your own health might be, we see it often at people with certain lifestyle issues. You know, 75% of all diseases are lifestyle related. So what, what will that do if, if I can really easily go into, you know, for a checkup or anything else? How will that be a consumer attitude as far as health is concerned? So these are maybe two remarks I have about health services being omnipresent and companies using it to have a kind of a cost advantage. So that's two remarks I had on that. Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're pretty valid. Indeed, to Aditi's point as well, I think there's, there's, there's a chunk of what is happening in healthcare that can't be replaced or easily replaced with humans, or with computers, let's say. But there's a lot of the, the work that can be done, maybe a big portion of the work, the first contacts, the, the, the diagnosis, the anamnesis, quite some lot of the, the tests can be automated. And then a physician might be working behind the scenes and not in front of the scenes, I think. So it, I think it's interesting to see how that would evolve. Well, thank you for all of these wise words. Again, dear panelists, dear friends, uh, I'd like to wrap up the health podcasts for this month. I thank you all for listening. And if you liked this show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for these insights and enthusiasms. Thank you, Aditi Joshi and Mo Zulina. My name is Christophe Schuke. We are the Health Enthusiasm Panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more 
health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thank you.